0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we're going to go a bit backwards in our timeline. Back to some of the issues that we covered in our Chapter 5 episodes. All of the research that I did on newspapers and their early attempts to experiment with digital media came from secondary sources. That's why I was super excited to be introduced to Steve Yelvington on Twitter. Steve is a several decades long veteran of the newspaper industry, as well as a true online and web pioneer. He gives us some great first-person perspective about how the news industry succeeded and failed in its attempts to address the challenges of the internet era. In our discussion, we mention a recent blog post of his in our conversation, and if you go to the show notes for this episode, you can get a link to that blog post. So enjoy this conversation with news and internet pioneer Steve Yelvington. Steve Yelvington, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
2: I'm Glad to be here.
0: You uh, you got your start in newspapers in in the seventies.
2: I sort of grew up uh, in the newspaper business. My dad was a newspaper editor, so yeah, you know I have roots going back into the dark ages of uh, hot type, um, linotypes, molten lead, and 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 um, and that kind of
0: thing. What what um, papers did he work at?
2: He worked at a daily newspaper in East St. Louis, Illinois, that's no longer there, uh, like most of East St. Louis, um, and, and was editor there. So I grew up around um, uh, speed graphic cameras, 4x5 film cameras, uh, you know, the
0: kind mm-hmm. that
2: you see in uh, uh, old black and white movies.
0: Right. And uh, it's when, you, when you got your start in newspapers, you, you started out in St. Louis as well?
2: I started out uh, uh, in College Town, um, a daily newspaper experience. I actually edited some weeklies owned by my family for a while, mm-hmm. uh, but then uh, in Champaign, uh, Illinois, and and then moved moved back down to St. Louis and worked at the uh, St. Louis Globe-Democrat, another paper that's no longer with us, and then uh, uh, moved on to uh, uh, Minneapolis at the Star Tribune, and and it was in Minneapolis that I moved from to uh, online.
0: Right. So obviously, uh, with the, the direction your career takes, I'm curious to know, um, were you also a bit of a nerd, a, a computer guy at all? Uh,
2: yeah, actually, yes. I, I, I moved to Minneapolis in, in uh, uh, about 1985 and didn't know anybody um, and discovered a, a local uh, Computer Monthly called called Computer User, and in the back of it, they had a list of bulletin board systems. So I bought a computer, uh, an Atari and a modem, and started dialing, and I discovered this incredible online world of conversation. Uh, there were about, I think, 80 or 90 bulletin boards privately run, and I wound up uh, being lured into that and and, and running my own BBS.
0: Uh, three hundred baud era. We're talking about uh,
2: three hundred baud and manual dial.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> putting putting the 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 phone cradle in the the handset in the cradle, sort of thing.
2: Yep, and watching watching the characters scroll by very slowly on mm-hmm.
0: the screen. Mm-hmm. So, um, we'll come back to to your uh your personal experiences and your career in a second. But let's let's do talk about um what your memories are about um, what early experimenting was already being done on things like BBSs and on things, on online services in, in general. Um, did you, um, do you have any memories of things like, you know, the Vutron or, or any, any other things like that that newspapers were starting to experiment with?
2: I, I knew about it. I didn't. Uh, I never had a Vutron uh, terminal. I know a guy who has a couple of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: but uh, I uh, I knew about Viewtron uh, Teletext operations, uh, the, you know I was pretty plugged into what the newspaper industry was doing, uh, reading trade journals, that kind of thing, and there was a lot of early experimentation with uh, Videotex and and so on in in the 1970s uh, and and 80s uh, on the proprietary services that existed back there. Things like CompuServe. And, Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also knew that Knight Ridder uh, newspaper chain had invested very heavily in, in Viewtron, and I, the, the scuttlebutt in the industry was that they lost about sixty million
1: dollars.
2: And that sort of burned the fingers of a lot of people. Uh, you know, a lot of enthusiasm about uh, investing heavily in online uh, retreated after that.
0: And that was Viewtron was in the early '80s, right?
2: It was uh, announced uh, uh, in the 70s, but it really um, uh, came to life in the, in the in the early 80s. They were still selling uh, Vutron Access when I moved to uh, Minneapolis because I saw the ads in in the St. Paul paper, which they owned.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, so uh, Vutron was uh, View Vut- uh, um, Video Text based, right?
2: It originally it, it originated before personal computers were common and and inexpensive.
0: Well, actually, so, you know what that, that might be useful for for our listeners. If you could describe what videotex and like what 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 was this service if it wasn't PC based yet?
2: Um, they started out with a, a a little keyboard that really was a microcomputer that they sold as part of the, of the access package. It was very limited and it, it you know, it had a, a built-in, uh, modem. It could dial up and display only what was on that service. You couldn't use it for any other purpose. Uh, before long though, um, you know, Radio Shack, um, uh, brought out the, the color computer, Coco that was uh, inexpensive enough that, uh, that people could, um, casually afford it, and, and then I believe uh, Vutron became available on that platform. There there were other services like Prodigy that were PC-based, uh, and of course, America Online.
0: Well, and um, and in Europe, um, they have Minitel, which is a similar sort of terminal-based system, right? Uh,
2: the, the French system, Minitel, um, uh, there was, I think, CFAX and Presto. There were a lot of these uh, systems that were really dedicated services that you could use for um, kind of the closed system purpose. They weren't general purpose computers like you and I would think of them.
0: So I think this is an important point to underline, though. It, it, a lot of these experiments are being created by newspaper companies like Knight Ritter, and so this is a full decade before the web. They're trying to experiment with an interactive digital way of delivering their content, Right.
2: Uh, that that's exactly right, and the the thing the thing to grab a hold of there is distributing their content. Uh, they really understood everything through the lens of a traditional publisher that says, you know, I gather, I organize, and I distribute, and you guys consume. And when the web came along, the web flipped all of that over, and and from the point of view of a publisher, it was total chaos.
0: Well, because all, almost all of these experiments are subscription based, right? You're paying, you're, you're renting the terminals, and and you're paying a monthly fee for the access.
2: That, that was that was the the economic foundation of, of all these was uh, primarily consumer uh, revenue based. Now, Prodigy had a slightly different vision. Uh, they they uh, really had access plus advertising, plus e-commerce in their in their business plan. But uh, things like uh, Minitel really started out as a cheaper way of having phone directories.
0: And, uh, again, these experiments are, are widespread. I mean, um, Los Angeles Times is doing it, um, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Milwaukee Journal, Washington Post, I think I remember they had a service for a while, too.
2: Washington Post was... Um... Uh, an early mover uh, into kind of the current era, I, I would describe it as they they um, saw that the opportunity was to use the much improved PCs uh, to to get to give you an experience that, in their vision, was kind of newspaper-like. It had fonts and you know, it was the Macintosh. Um, uh, thing. Their first prototype was actually built on a Mac using uh, uh, u- u- using HyperCard, um, uh, just to show people what might be possible. And the the vision was to um, create an addition uh, you know, a digital edition of a of a news presentation.
0: And so it's it's not. Is it still just repurposing what was in the print edition, or are are they? even early on starting to do specific digital-only content?
2: It was uh, uh, largely repurposing. Probably the exception to that was the emergence of forums on, um, uh, I recall, Access Atlanta. Um, This is before they were even officially up and running, but they were in in beta. They had uh, forums, and the forums just took off on, on the Prodigy platform. Uh, one of the things they learned, though, is that users were very, very vocal and very critical of uh, of the newspaper for being slow. They, they said, uh, "You know, this is this is a digital medium. This should be right now. I want to know the score of the game the second it's over. With don't make me wait for tomorrow morning when you post the story."
0: Hmm. The the trolls are there already, and they're already they, angry they, and were,
2: they were they um, were very opinionated and it was an eye-opening experience for those of us who were sort of hovering over this.
0: Okay. So then that, that does bring us back into, um, into your personal history with this. So by the early nineties, they are experimenting with full online services. So no longer with the, these separate terminals, the, things you can access from your, your PC. Um, and, and around 1994, I, I believe um, Star Tribune online, which you helped launch is, is one of these efforts. Is that right?
2: Yes, the, uh, the Star Tribune uh, made a decision to, to move ahead in this territory. We looked around and, and saw other newspapers doing it and wanted to get out there, and, and the, the first goal was to learn. Uh, so we uh, very, very seriously thought about going on to the Prodigy platform along with other newspapers where we, we thought we could exchange information. Um, but um, uh, about that time... Um, The Ziff Davis magazine people who published popular photography Uh and a bunch uh of car magazines back back in the day, Um, uh, the Ziff Davis people had been publishing for years on CompuServe and, and AOL, and they were very dissatisfied with the user experience. They had gone out and built a proprietary online service that used SGML and style sheets, and, and templates and a database-backed publishing system. Um, hired a bunch of people from Lotus um, uh, down the road from them in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to build this thing. And it was it was a piece of work. It was gorgeous. Oh. It was typo- typography. They hired uh, Matthew uh, Carter to um, create their own fonts. And we decided to go uh, publish on that platform and built built an online service at the Star Tribune that we would sell to consumers. And it would include um, the the rest of what was on that platform uh, called Interchange. The Ziff Davis part was kind of built into the offer. And if you wanted to add the Washington Post, you could do that. Um, Everybody was very excited about uh, this model that that was still founded on paid access and actually you had to pay for your dial-up time as well
0: i know i promise you you wouldn't have to remember numbers but in in the ballpark do you have any recollection of what you know what my monthly fee would have been to use this service
2: well, when 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 it when we started working on it um, most of the services were like a dollar an hour of access time mm-hmm. um, uh, by the time we actually launched um, uh, it had gone flat rate uh, I think we were charging about twelve dollars 10, 10 or ten or twelve dollars a month for uh, for the subscription Uh but um, we, never, we never got more than probably around 800 paid users before the entire world changed around us. And uh, we, with, within, within you know, six or eight months, we made a decision to move to the web.
0: So this would be about 1995 when, when you see the web taking off.
2: 95, um, uh, in, in 1995 and 96, everything changed. We, in Minneapolis, went from a scenario where you had really two Internet service providers, um,
1: the university,
2: if you knew somebody there, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the Minnesota Regional Network, which really dealt with uh, tech companies, at least blinds, um that kind of thing. Um, we went from from those two to about 110 or 115 garage-based internet service providers. Every you know every geek in town became an ISP in order to fund their personal internet addiction. <laughs> and so there were dial-ups everywhere. Flat rate. Um, the, the 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 economics of internet access just blew out and. Uh, literally eight to ten months
0: so you do transition to to a website um and i I guess you you eventually just completely drop the the dial-up service
2: we um yeah we it, it took about six months to to make that change we had to build people don't don't remember how primitive the web was back then you can't build a really big complicated operation if everybody's sitting there writing html
0: Right. Well, and there's there's not a lot of off-the-shelf open-source packages like there are there today.
2: Just nothing. So we had to build uh, build our own production system. Uh, a lot of Perl scripts and a lot of uh, uh, Sybase uh, database work. And and those of us who had an inclination to learn such things learned an awful lot really quickly about uh, about software development processes.
0: And, that, and that's I'm curious you're you're having to learn yourself are, are you able to hire in again this is so early on there's not a, a generation of, of geeks that have come up learning programming and especially in Minneapolis like how do you get the talent to to get the operation off the ground
2: well many we were blessed in Minneapolis by uh, its history as a, um, uh, a technology environment back mm-hmm. in the in the days of control data corporation right. And, uh, you know, really big supercomputers, um, um, uh, there were ETA Systems was based up there and Apollo and, you know, companies that are all gone now. So we were able to uh, to hire contractors who, had, you know, who, who knew enough Perl, enough database uh, to to build a system um, and, and really created our own publishing environment. Um, nobody was vending that kind of thing then
0: and once uh once you're transition to a website again i'm assuming that early on uh, again the model is to just repurpose uh, uh the print content right
2: well i think most newspapers approached it that way we actually did not when we made the decision uh to to move uh to the web the the plan was that um, we would update the, the website continuously, but had a lot of meetings with the newsroom ground rules
1: for mm-hmm.
2: when, when you wrote what. And, and the, as I recall, the, the basic rule was that any story uh, that was that breaking story that was in the public domain. In other words, it wasn't an investigation that we exclusively held, uh, but people knew about it. As soon as we knew the, the basic, you know, the, who, what, where, when, and, 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 and how uh, we got the basics up on line. And then the expectation was that it would be replaced by a longer version when the reporter got done uh, doing a, a more, more thorough and, and deeper uh, job of reporting. Most newspapers didn't do that and really didn't grasp that, um, that importance of, of, uh, continuous publishing in real time for years. You know, years later, I would see an announcement of, you know, the Washington Post has created a continuous news desk, and right. the, that's what the newsroom's for. Uh, so w- we got that, and and I have to credit, you know, the, the loudmouths who were complaining on Access Atlanta, uh, where I saw this uh, uh, voiced so powerfully, as as being an inspiration for us. We didn't want to be um, viewed that way by our customers.
0: Uh, How about community? How about bulletin boards, uh, maybe even uh, online classifieds? Did you experiment with any of those?
2: We did. uh, We we, um, had the benefit of the, the fact that I had started out Playing in the bulletin board world made me look at the online experience as as one founded primarily on conversation. Uh, so uh, the the uh, the system that um, uh, that Interchange that, that Ziff Davis had built uh, actually had great forum software because they came out of that world as well. They came out of you know CompuServe, SIGS, and that kind of thing. So um, from day one, we were very focused on uh, community conversation, commenting, um, engagement um, of that type. And even before the web, we moved to the web, we were trying to get community organizations to come and publish on our platform uh, and have their you know, uh, uh, organizations, church groups and, and, and civic organizations to have their own spaces. So we, from day one, we're trying to to create, really kind of what the web became. But the thing about the, about the web is, is, I'm reminded of something I heard uh, Scott Kernett say. Uh, Scott was, um, when I met him, was um, uh, marketing director at, at Prodigy and right. he went on to uh, found the mining company and so on. Uh, but at a conference, he he said. Okay, open systems beat great closed systems every time. And the web being an okay open system, as primitive as it was, enabled everybody to come at once and do the thing, the idea they had. So there was no way that proprietary systems, regardless of whether you had Sears, CBS, IBM, and, you know, et cetera, behind them, you you just could not keep up when. Everybody comes at you. So the web um, uh, basically replaced the proprietary stuff. And just, it it didn't even take a year. It was the fastest change I have ever seen.
0: You always read about, even to this day, um, you know, editorial being uncomfortable with the the great unwashed masses uh, interacting (laughs) amongst amongst their content and in their product. Uh, with your immediate, uh, bosses, did, was there any pushback on that? Was there any debates about, about, um, I don't know, like we said, trolls or, 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 uh, comments being unruly that sort of thing? Uh,
2: no, no, there wasn't. Um, but, you know, I, I, and I was blessed to work for Tim McGuire, who, who's, uh, who now teaches at, at Arizona State, um, and, and Tim, Tim understood this, um, Kind of naturally um, I, I, my bosses didn't uh, didn't get uh, flaky about it, but I know that um, we had kind of an ease into this because we were subscription based. everyone was posting with their real name and not just a name but their real name because mm-hmm. it was the name that was on their credit card right and we were able to Move into the interactive world in a in a kind of a sheltered environment that didn't have trolls and didn't have abusers, um, and it was before spam really um, took over um, the experience. So um, things were actually a lot easier back then. Uh, when we moved to the uh, to the web, we built forums using some software that, uh, in some ways looked kind of like what we were using on, on the interchange platform. And there were only a few, it's called web, web crossing. And there were only a few, uh, companies using it. One of them was, I think salon and salon had a troll problem. They cracked down on their trolls and, uh, gave everybody a one month timeout who was, was abusive said, you know, okay, he, you can come back after a month, but you're not going to use this for a month because your account's suspended. Well, all these people looked around for a comfortable environment that looked like the one they were used to, and they found ours. We had this was like an invasion of locusts from California huh. that came in and created a, a great deal of uproar in about 48 hours on on the Star Tribune Online's bulletin boards. What What happened next just was amazing. Our users stood up and spoke up and said, y'all are – they didn't say y'all because this is Minnesota. (laughs) Right, right. They said, you you are welcome to be here. You are welcome to participate in a conversation with us, but you have to adhere to our social norms. You have to uh, behave like a Minnesotan and be very polite. And no personal attacks, and the, the the people who'd been thrown out of salon conformed. That that peer pressure is so incredibly powerful. So you know, we had actually very good experiences with uh, with this uh, over over time, though, as internet access became um, uh, cheaper and easier, and really, really large numbers. Uh, moved into the environment, um, the, the, the whole commenting experience was, prog- you know, it was undermined uh, by fairly small numbers of people. But when you have a really large uh, uh, universe to pick f- from, there's going to be an adequate supply of idiots who, uh, who will abuse and uh, basically drive out the good conversation. And that's really been the struggle Uh, In the more modern era, it's not that it's not that um, I think journalists uh, hate the masses. I think it's more that we are appalled at the the results of a fairly small group of uh, jerks who um, who make it impossible for anybody else to have a good conversation.
0: Uh, I want to go more into um, conceptual questions like this, but one more question about the era, because this is, as we enter into the late 90s, everyone remembers it as uh, the dot-com era, the web taking off, but it's kind of forgotten today that this was also the era of AOL's dominance, because AOL was how the vast majority of Americans at the time actually got online and, and found their way to a site like yours. Um, did you guys uh, do any partnerships, any work with AOL um, or their their Digital Cities initiative and things like that?
2: We did actually work with uh, with Digital Cities. Um, um, that was, I mean, that was kind of the year when everybody was doing everything. Um, so AOL came to town and set up a Digital Cities operation with an office and a staff. Hmm. But we we uh, built a relationship with them. Um, and, and published some of our content on the AOL platform, um, somewhere I still have the hat. Uh, we, we, we competed with Microsoft. Um, Microsoft started something called Sidewalk. Right. And uh, they also opened up an office in town with the staff. So uh, it, it, was, it was a great place to be if you liked competition because you had Star Tribune uh, online uh, becoming startribune.com. You had uh, sidewalk. You had digital cities. You had the St. Paul Pioneer Press had something called uh, Pioneer Planet. Everybody was into weird names back then, and um, and, and and we also were the market where um, uh, Channel 4000 um, Internet Broadcasting Company began. Internet Broadcasting then became a, a very big provider of. Of, of web services to TV stations all over the country. So we were the uh, kind of the home market for them. It was, it was, um, you know, a, a knife fight uh, for audience and for attention. And uh, it really accelerated the development of, um, of the interactive audience in, in the Twin Cities.
0: So, okay, great. Now that we have this, this framework of the chronology of um, newspaper experiments in, in the 90s. Let's move to some of the, like I said, the, the conceptual issues. One of the ways that I was turned on to you as, as somebody interesting to talk to is you recently had a, a blog post um, that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes where you um, took exception to the idea that is fairly common out there that the original sin of for newspapers and, and journalism on, on the web was that 20 years ago... Um, everyone just started giving away their content for free, and as we've already talked about, that's not exactly how it happened.
2: Yeah, we we, we um, actually tried pretty hard to charge for content. Um, the explosion of um, content—not news content, but just content on the internet—that that that took place when um, you know when the access rules went away, and and commercial operation was possible, um, basically drew the attention away from traditional media. Uh, if, if you kind of go back and to the print era and think of what a newspaper was back then, it was a package of news, of course, but it was also the entertainment. The evening newspaper was the evening's entertainment for a lot of people. You only had one or two TV stations in markets so uh, as as television, as radio, and then the internet sort of exploded the options, the audience um, progressively looked at news as a s- newspaper and the package that came came every day as a thinner and thinner slice of what they were going to be consuming.
0: So the point you're making is is almost that it's just there's this explosion of options and so one way or another news is just one more option one more channel out there to to grab people's interest and it's it was difficult to compete with with the explosion of options basically
2: absolutely there's we could we have data now uh, on uh, how much time and how many page views are are um, uh, are, are snapped up by different categories of, of um of use on the internet, different um, different competitors, and social media, of course, is huge, and the use of literally news sites, whether they be newspaper or radio or, or TV based or it, completely independent, is just a very tiny slice. It's a part. It's part of your sort of circle of life, but it's a smaller and smaller part. That's not a good thing. Um, I wish people uh, spent less time with the Kardashians and a whole lot more time with uh, uh, with their their communities. But uh, it, it is the reality that we're living in, and it's one of the uh, the several big transformations that have um, posed huge problems for um, uh, for traditional news companies.
0: Well, let me. Uh... Sort of to play devil's advocate, let me poke at this a little bit more. Um, Because going back to the late online era, early 90s, when content providers do deals with people like Prodigy and AOL, like, for example, Time does a deal to put some of their magazines on AOL's service. Um, AOL's paying them, so the content providers can justify this as, well, we're, we're expanding our revenue stream uh, this is a new distribution channel, and we're getting paid for it. But from from the user's perspective, then all of a sudden, having People Magazine, I don't know if People was one of the titles that was on there, but that's just something that came for free along with their subscription to AOL. You know what I mean? Like, So was there an era maybe where news and content was at least devalued in the user's? Mind period, mindset.
2: I, I think that the value was in the value of the brand. When these traditional brands became part of the package, it uh, it was persuasive. It it enabled, uh, it enabled the uh, the ISPs and the and, and the the pre-ISP's uh, services to um, say to the consumer, we have a huge collection of. Things that, that you will you will recognize and know, what happened after they got there, is is that the actual parts of the service that interested people was different from what the you know, upfront offer was. So what really attra- uh, attracted people turned out to be the conversation. Right. There's a there's a story about the technology of this. Prodigy built. IBM,
0: IBM IBM and Sears, right?
2: And CBS built their own network, uh, and in each local market they had a server, a caching server, and all these caching servers were hooked back to the the mothership and White Plains through tiny little 56K frame relay lines, and um, the system was architected for uh, pushing out broadcasting information from a creator and aggregator out to the consumer well when they installed forum software it overwhelmed their network people stopped spending their time reading the Washington Post story or the uh, the, the uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution story they, they stopped reading that kind of thing and, and went into reading a conversation or a cha- a live chat with other people they had to rebuild the whole darn network to accommodate the reality of human behavior that we all like to chat. I, I can, can remember in my research when I was working on building Star Tribune online, I ran across a story, uh, I think it was a Los Angeles Times story, about the uh, construction of, of the Knight Ritter service, uh, Vutron. And um, it, they had an interview with a Knight Ritter executive who, who was really bitter about the failure of um, of, of Utron he, And he blamed it on the users, which is you know, kind of crazy, but he blamed it on the users being uh, more interested in um, in chatting about sex than in reading news. And, and I read that, and I thought only a newspaper executive would find it surprising that people <laughs> found sex more interesting than news.
0: Mm-hmm. It was ever thus, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah,
2: yeah. The the things that that people um, actually use the internet for, you know, have to do with basic human needs, and a lot of that is communication. The things that attracted them to the service. To get back to your point, um, I I think that the the existence of these traditional respected brands did an awful lot to help those services get up and running
0: well also to come at it in a different way um by the time of the portals um so we're in the web era now and places like yahoo and excite become these portals you know like yahoo does this great deal with reuters um to provide uh headlines and news and so again my 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 question is, is like from, from a, a user's experience, I come to the web. The web is essentially free. There's a few things that ask me to pay, but I tend to avoid those. And when I go to Yahoo every morning, um, I, I expect all these freebies like uh, to, to check mail, to see the sports scores, to, to, to see the weather. And so then the news is just another part of these table stakes that I expect to be there for, for my online experience.
2: And and, uh, it's it's a valuable part of the mix. Um, People would check the headlines, um, not so much to see what had happened, but to make sure that nothing bad had happened that they might need to know about, and and then move on to something else. Uh, Excite um, uh, Excite, uh, told us that about 40% of their total uh, usage drove to local resources. Um, it, it, this is at the time at which I, I worked for Cox Interactive in, in Atlanta building a network of um, a national network of, of local portals uh, local sites um, there was a, a great deal of interest in practical information about my neighborhood um, so you, you might have come for the headlines and checked them and then you move on to the other stuff and the greatest difficulty newspaper and traditional media companies have had is understanding that it's the other stuff that that, that they really need to be focusing on. Um, Not that you don't focus on news, but you really need to be useful and interactive and entertaining and engaging.
1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
0: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So another another thing that's out there in our popular imagination about what has happened to newspapers and, and content on, on the web is that... Um, you know the web comes along and it kills this golden goose of classified ads that it turns out was the thing that was uh, again the golden goose for for the news industry um for all this time but if you look at the if you actually look at the numbers it's not until e- even the middle of the last decade that you start to really see classified advertising really crashing so it wasn't immediately things like eBay came in and, and killed newspaper classifieds. You know, Craigslist doesn't really take off till the mid 2000s nationwide. So I'm curious, is, is this another myth that as soon as the web was there, classifieds were dead for, for newspapers?
2: Well, I think that as soon as the web was there and um, uh, a couple of early examples of classifieds showed up, there were those of us in the newspaper industry who could read the writing on the wall that um uh, this this, this um, wasn't this great re- resource that revenue source that we had wasn't necessarily going to uh, continue. Uh we tried uh, what we could. In fact, newspaper companies um uh, got together and uh, invested in in a competitor to eBay that that failed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, there's a lot of those. I mean, CareerBuilder was a, a newspaper consortium. Uh, mm-hmm. Cars.com, I believe, also was. And even even early, early on, uh, what was the new, new Century Network?
2: Well, the New Century Network actually dates right back to the the beginning of the web transition for newspapers uh-huh. and um, news companies looked at the web, and and they said, okay, scale is important. We're not quite sure what that means, but scale is important. And um, people coming online are going to want to um, uh, have one payment that gives them the stuff they need. And so uh, companies like Knight Ritter, which had moved into the ISP business and and, um, uh, Landmark – uh, companies like that were all—they were, all, were ISPs—and they thought that um, you could extend this content access model, the paid circulation model, to the whole world. So what they tried to to first envision—and and this went away before it even got off the ground—what they what they thought about doing was uh, kind of a, a library card system. You pay one uh, price for internet access from your local newspaper.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And you get the internet and you get access to all of the participating newspapers content. and they're going to track that and ship money back and forth, uh, you know recognition of value created, that kind of thing. Really a complicated uh, thing to do. People who didn't subscribe to any of the newspapers wouldn't be able to get any of the newspapers. Um, it, um, uh, they, they, got as far as, you know, drawing up their request for proposals and circulating that in the industry, but, um, uh, it's, it's hard to get, um, uh, newspaper companies to cooperate with one another because they're all very competitive and, and, um, uh, and, and should be. Uh, so the, the, the effort fell apart and what did survive was the construction of, um, some national advertising networks, national advertising sales initiatives, and some content exchanges. And um, uh, toward the end, there were conversations about buying Netscape.com, mm-hmm. which had a lot of traffic, and using it as a portal to uh, to drive traffic to uh, to news sites. Uh, the kind of the underappreciated part of the problem back then. Was finding stuff on the internet. This is before um, Google. Uh, before before Google rewrote the the world. Uh, Alta Vista um, was w- was an eye opener for a lot of us. Um, I think Alta Vista. Actually, there were newspaper investors in that. The company I work for now um, uh, invested heavily on, in. Um, uh, in, in Zip two, which was one of Elon Musk's early uh, right. projects, and uh, made a ton of money on that deal when when zip two was was sold to uh, to Compaq. Um, so we we were all trying to um, to figure out a business model. Every conference I went to had these long insufferable uh, conversations about the need to develop a, a business model. But really, nothing was was clear, and our reflexes kept driving us toward this, um, you know, um, notion of charging individuals for access. And the individuals, people, customers' point of view uh, was, was some, what you said earlier. You know, I, I, I already paid. I paid my ISP. Why do you want me to pay? Right. You know, I, I want this as simple as possible.
0: So if there's one thing I, I, I feel like I want to underline here, it's that this notion that the newspapers had their heads in the sand and, and didn't see this coming is, is completely false. They, they, they saw it coming. They tried a, several different kinds of efforts, some related to classified, some related to, to subscriptions and ISPs and things like that. And it's just that, that none of them actually took hold.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's true, but it's it's the opposite is also true. There were plenty of people who had their heads in the sand. Um, there were basically people in newsrooms were willfully ignorant of the business realities of of, of their own business, um, and and many of them developed very strong opinions without bothering to do any research. And they, hence my blog post. I, uh, you know whatever your opinion is fine, but please do your reporting first and base your opinion on facts. News, there were a lot of people in the industry who wanted all this to go away. And there were people who's, uh, who, who, who made sort of ego-driven pronouncements about how content was important and people ought to pay for it, therefore we're going to charge. Um, there, there was denial. There were companies that chose to invest in buying more of the past instead of investing in the future they bought newspaper 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 and they leveraged the companies to do it they borrowed millions hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars billions of dollars and then couldn't pay the loans that's why you saw the bankruptcies the collapse of newspaper companies that you, that you've seen in the, in the last decade it wasn't be, uh, so much because the Internet had destroyed newspapering. The internet gave newspapering a lot of problems, but it was because these companies had just over uh, over leveraged themselves, not to not to invest in in, in digital uh, efforts, but but rather to invest in you know new new presses, bigger presses, more more newspapers, and more of the past.
0: To that end, kind of. Um... How do you feel personally about uh, paywalls as a business model today? Um, is can they work, and if they can work, in what ways can they work, and, and what allows them to work?
2: Well, they can work. Uh, they can't work very well. They 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 do work. Uh, we have uh, the, the meter, uh, the pay meter approach, which uh, has emerged in in the last. Uh, uh, five or six years, uh, says. First of all, we need to let people see what we're doing. They won't give us any money at all if they don't know what we're doing. So you you let people sample, and then if they're heavy users, you ask them to pay, and um, a percentage of them will. So yeah, we um, we're able to to get some revenue, not nearly as much as I'd like, and I think ultimately not mu- not as much as we need to. Go forward with the kind of quality that we that we produce today. Um, we, we have to develop other revenue sources. So um, the revenue sources are, are consumer revenue from subscriptions and and um, the continued existence of print, which you know, it's it's it may drop in penetration and frequency, but it's not going away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is profitable. It's just not as big as it used to be and, and uh, then then we have moved very aggressively into the sales of digital services um, most newspapers and, and ours is one of them sells ad retargeting so um, you know a, a business that is based here can have ads that, that chase consumers all over the internet showing up on weathercom or whatever based on their behavior and their interest profiles um, it's, it's not just, you know, our website, our website, our website. It's, it's um, a broad array of, uh, of SEO and search engine marketing and um, all that
0: kind of thing. So well. it's it's about finding the, the right mix of all sorts of different kinds of products, and, and pay paywalls can be a, a component of that, free content can be a component of that, and even print can still be a component of that.
2: Pre- pretty much, pretty much. Uh, there, there's no silver bullet. There's just a whole bunch of BBs.
0: I'm curious what you think of, of what people call these new um, digital native companies. I'm thinking of companies like BuzzFeed and, and Vox Media um, who are almost entirely free, um, don't have any paywalls and stuff, but they, they also have zero background in any sort of print um, legacy or anything like that. I'm curious uh, what, what your thoughts are on, on this new breed of company.
2: Well, uh, a lot of them have uh, uh, two things that traditional newspaper media uh, doesn't have. Newspapers in this country uh, are fundamentally local, geographically local businesses and, and operate on a constrained scale, a geographically constrained scale because of that. Um, a Vox or – I mean, look, look at what Nick Denton has done with, uh, with, with his website.
1: Mm-hmm. They, they
2: They go global. They don't have to go very deep, but they go really wide in terms of uh, who they engage with, um, so th- that enables them to uh, fairly inexpensively uh, get, create a whole lot of advertising inventory. The, the second thing they do is, is that they operate as a, a, a pretty thin um, uh, expense line. They, they don't have the legacy costs that, uh, uh, th- th- that we would have. So they're able to do that and and survive and be profitable, even though we all know that national and international um, ad rates are a commodity. Commodities: the nature of commodities is that price will be driven down to the cost of production. So they have to be operating in a very thin. Uh, line between what they can sell for and what what it costs them to make that inventory. So yeah, they come out making money. Uh, now, do they? Do they contribute to society? Not necessarily. Some do, and um, I think Vox is on that list. Um, they're they're not. Always great reporting engines, but they may, yeah, you know, Vox is a great explan- explanatory engine.
0: Well, and uh, places like uh, Vice would say, and, and even uh, BuzzFeed, uh, Jonah Pretty it, it says all the time that they're expanding into original reporting, but then again, there's a huge difference between sending one guy to Africa to cover Ebola versus having an entire African bureau staffed by, you know, 30, 40 people that are regularly collecting stories.
2: which yeah, having people there all the time.
0: Exactly. Um, and and
2: uh, so, yeah, you can do uh, that kind of reporting by chasing stories after they surface. But the the, 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 the great job that good journalism does is, is uh, making stories surface that don't want to be surfaced. Um, you know, the, the the thing that I respect most about uh, great reporting is uh, is the discovery. Um, great storytelling, I love great storytelling. It, 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 it's uh, it's wonderful when it happens, but the um, the real wonder to me is happens when uh, reporters dig deep and find out things that people don't want known. Uh, so I, I you know, my opinion of of the Buzzfeeds of this world. Will go up when they do exactly that, and they can, but they they don't necessarily.
0: Well, let's hope they're moving in that direction. Um, one more one more question. Um, uh, just comment on our current social world the the infrastructure of of these big uh, content silos, almost like Facebook, like Twitter, like Google to an extent. Um, I'm thinking obviously most recently about the, the brouhaha about Facebook instant articles and this notion that now there's this new problem for content and, and, and news creators that they're no longer in control of their own audience. Even it's all, they're beholden to Facebook and they're beholden to getting likes and tweets and things like that. Uh,
2: Facebook is, um, uh, the best friend to, um, uh, to the news industry uh, right now and also its worst enemy. It, it, um, uh, it's, it's really in passing search as a source of traffic. Uh, so those of us who really, really need to build engagement on the sites that we've built um, really like Facebook for that. But at the same time, we're painfully aware that they have taken away the, the key function that, that we want to play, and that is to be the primary provider and connector. Uh, the conversation on Facebook is so powerful that people spend incredible amounts of time there and get their basic understanding of the news in our communities from that stream. We have to be there it's not an option we have to be there but um the uh the time and attention is accruing to facebook and and not to the people who are doing the digging and the discovery and and, and the creation of news uh it it um we we can all see this you look at the number of people who uh, see a, a post on Facebook, the number of people who click, the number of people who comment, and then the number of people who actually go all the way through to the article and read the article, it's um, it's pretty depressing. People uh, are more interested in uh, looking at the headline, having an instant opinion, and discussing it with their friends than they are at reading the traditional journalism. Now, what that means is in order to teach people what we have learned we have to learn to converse more effectively uh, than we're doing now and and doing that on our side or on their side, sometimes that gets disconnected from the business model so that
0: that's the real challenge that we have okay I lied one one more question <laughs> um, I'm at least uh, professionally friendly with with uh, journalists that came up as bloggers, you know the the Ezra Kleins, Mattaglases of the <laughs> world, um, and they would tell you if you ask them that there's never been a better time to be a writer. There's so many new channels and opportunities out there. When you speak to, because I, I assume you must on occasion speak to, let's say, young people coming out of journalism school, well, what do you say to them? Are you are you optimistic about their future? Well,
2: um, I I, I understand the point of view that says there's never a better time to do what I'm doing right now. You can say that if you are uh, having success and and, and feeding yourself. Um, If you're coming out of journalism school and looking at the industry um, as a a place that you are are going to have a comfortable career and uh, know where your paycheck is coming from, that's a different challenge. It is, um, it's a frightening and tough thing, uh, for, uh, a J school graduate today to look at, uh, um, at a career and have any kind of confidence that it's going to go well. Um, but you know, if it is going well, I can't imagine how you could not be just overwhelmingly excited about all the, all the things that are happening, all the things you can do, the kind of engagement you can have with people, the ability to, uh, to reach a, a global audience if you just tell the story right. Those are really exciting aspects.
0: Well, let's finish um, by uh, asking you uh, what you're doing today and, and what you're doing with um, the Savannah Morning News.
2: What I'm doing today is I've moved through uh, the the, the sort of corporate overhead experience and decided that I wanted to uh, uh, come to one of the operating units and be here in Savannah, which is a wonderful town. Uh, And my responsibility is I'm called the uh, vice president of audience, and it really is um, a job that recognizes our business is built around Putting an audience together and then selling its attention to advertisers. So we have a VP of revenue and a VP of audience. So I'm I'm responsible for that part of the entire enterprise that that serves consumers. That's that's the news department. It's also commercial content. It's circulation and delivery and pulling all of that together under under one uh, uh, team. So uh, I, I've kind of uh, returned to the world where print is a big part of what I worry about. I'm not uh, purely digital anymore after having done that for quite a long time.
0: Well, uh, Steve Elvington, uh, I, I thank you so much for um, giving us the context and, and the chronology of, of newspapers and, and the challenges of the web era.
2: Well, thank you for having me, and I hope, uh, I, hope I got some of this right.
0: If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at MCC. Thanks for listening.
2: As a major research institution, Arizona State University offers the most online bachelor's degree programs, along with world-class faculty and dedicated support. Discover why ASU is ranked number one in innovation for nine consecutive years. Tap to learn more.